This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we thank you again. The Bible says if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. God, we come to you not with pride or arrogance, but we come to you humbly, Lord, seeking wisdom and knowledge from the world's greatest teacher. Father, please let your light shine, Lord, that we may behold you more and more. And thank you, God, that you're not just the light of our lives, but you are the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just letting you also know that after this session, we're going to cover um, the next session, Powerful Secrets in the Book of Genesis. And I really believe you're going to be challenged with some things in the book of Genesis. Um, I should have, maybe, yeah, okay, good. Maybe someone should have passed them out. So when you see a group of people coming towards the front, either means something, uh, yeah, appeal or it's something dangerous is about to happen. So uh, I always tell my deacons when I'm preaching, I tell my head deacon, just to keep on guard, because you never know what type of people you get in church. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of heckler videos. You guys know what hecklers are? They're people who just really patronize the speaker. And I've seen some hecklers just really cause a a lot of problems. It's so funny, one time I heard uh, Morris Venden tell a story about how he he, he was preaching evangelistic series. And this heckler stands up in the... And the first night, and he says, you, you Venden brothers, you're always preaching about the end of the world. You're always preaching about the end of the world. And uh, he says, the end of the world hasn't come yet. And Morris stands up and he says, did you actually know you're one of the signs of the end of the world? <laughs> and the man says, what? He's like, yeah. And he turns to Second Peter, and where the Bible says that scoffers will arise in the last days, and they say, where's the promise of his coming? And he said, the man you know, stood up, and while everybody was reading, he sat down, never stood up again after that. So, just want to give you a warning. So, but there will, be a, there will be a question and answer session, hopefully at the end of this when there's time. And uh, so please take questions, write them down. It's very important. So why don't we begin? Um, this morning session is entitled, Hidden Gospel Truths in World Religions. Again, I did something similar in Audioverse, but I've revamped a lot of this and I brought in brand new material, so I think you'll really appreciate this. Some of the stuff I already covered in the seminar that's on Audioverse, but there is some new stuff on here. Jesus says he is the light of the world. The light of the world. It's very interesting. I was speaking in England about a month ago, and uh, as I was uh, going to England, I was stopped at the airport and you know, and I was just talking to a gentleman. He was from England as well. And the English, the, the great thing about the English is they have a strong command of the English language. And so sometimes it can be intimidating because they have a very strong vocabulary. They know how to use the English language. So I was thinking to myself, okay, every English person I come across, I have to be smarter than them. <laughs> and so I was talking to this English man and, you know, it just God opened up an opportunity. I was able to witness to him. And I started telling him about evidences of the Bible. One of the things I was telling him about was that I was telling him about the documentation that exists for the New Testament. Did you know if the entire New Testament was destroyed, like every New Testament was destroyed right now, scholars would be able to reproduce them, reproduce the New Testament. You know how? Simply by the writings of the 2nd and 3rd century church fathers. They wrote enough about the New Testament that we would be able to reproduce the New Testament except for about 11 verses. So that's if every New Testament was completely destroyed, obliterating. But I also told him that when you look at the documentation in the New Testament, it's astounding. I said, we actually have a document, part of a document. It's it's dated about A.D. 130, 125, and it's the Gospel of John, a portion of the Gospel of John. It's called the Ryland Scroll. Okay. Now, what was so amazing about this is that it's a portion of John chapter 18, when Jesus is before Pilate. This is considered the oldest New Testament document. Now think about this. When did John write the book of Revelation? Around AD 90, right? 
many scholars believe that he probably wrote the Gospel of John somewhere after that time or maybe right before that time. So think about that. If we have a fragment of a scroll that's dated A.D. 125, A.D. 130, that's not too far away. We're talking something 20 or 30 years. And we have that scroll. And what was so amazing is I was telling him about this, and he said, you mean the John Ryland scroll? I said, yeah. And he said, you know the Ryland's library is in Manchester, where I was going to speak. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and he says, no. And I was able to visit the Ryland's library. It's just like around the corner from where I was staying. It was so amazing. In fact, I was able to look at the document, and here it is. You are looking at the John Ryland scroll. It's a, it is the oldest New Testament document. It's a fragment of it, and we actually have that. And I can't believe it. I mean, I was there, and I was just looking at it with my very own eyes. And I love what the Bible says. Desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. It's in the book of Proverbs. And I walked away, and I was like, I cannot believe I'm looking at something that is just a part of divine history. Can you say amen to that? But here was so, here's what's so interesting. The portion that, was, that we actually have in the John Ryland scroll is this. It's actually the portion where Pilate is standing before Jesus, and Pilate says, where are you from? And Jesus begins to say, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says, who are you? And Jesus says, you know, I've already told you these things. And then Jesus says, whoever is of the truth hears my voice. And what's so amazing about this is Pilate says, what is truth walks away. That is the last part of this scroll. You, 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 now think about that. The oldest New Testament fragment that we have is actually a portion of John chapter 18 where Pilate is simply walking away from Jesus and saying, what is truth? What a witness to this world that has so many different beliefs and so many so-called truths. Yet God has given us the truth in Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And that's what's so beautiful about this fragment. I love what Ellen White says right here in Desire of Ages. In all ages, philosophers and teachers have been presenting to the world theories by which to satisfy the soul's need. Every heathen nation has its great teachers and religious system offering some other means of redemption than Christ, turning the eyes of men away from the Father's face and filling their hearts with fear of Him who has given them only blessing. The trend of their work is to rob God of that which is his own, both by creation and redemption. Millions of human beings are bound down under false religions in the bondage of slavish fear, of stolid indifference, toiling like beasts of burdens, bereft of hope or joy or aspiration here, and only with the dull fear of the hereafter. And I know that's true, because if you've ever been to a Hindu funeral, you will see it's a lot different than a Christian funeral. The Hindus do not have the hope of the resurrection. All they have is nirvana where one becomes one with the stars. And so there isn't this hope you will see your loved ones again. Uh, several times I've been to India and I have seen all the various you know, idols that are there. And the, you go by the Ganges River and you'll see all the various idols that are there. And you see people worshipping these idols simply because they want a blessing. They're afraid of God's or the God's wrath upon them. Very interesting. And Satan has used this to hold the world in bondage. Let's continue. It is the gospel of the grace of God alone that can uplift the soul. Can you say amen to that? The contemplation of the love of God manifested in His Son will stir the heart and arouse the powers of the soul as nothing else can. And whoever turns men away from Christ is turning them away from the source of true development. He is defrauding them of hope and purpose and the glory of life. Isn't that powerful? And here's what you're going to discover about this seminar. We're going to discover something very interesting about world religions. I am by no means, now listen to me, advocating you go into other religions besides Adventism. I want you to understand that. You can take my material, you can use this material, you can keep the PowerPoint, but nobody walk away and said, Anel said it's okay to be a Hindu. If you do that, I will find you. Okay? Folks, I want you to understand something. We have the whole truth right here. Can you say amen to that? And God wants us to follow the whole truth. But we're going to learn some very interesting things about these other world religions. Through the work of the enemy, truths had been displaced. Do you know what the word displaced means? 
It means taken out of its original location. Let's continue. They had been disconnected from their true position and placed in the framework of error. In other words, truth has been disconnected from its original position and placed within a framework of error. Christ's work was to readjust and establish the precious gems in the framework of truth. The principles of truth that had been given by himself to bless the world had, through Satan's agencies, been buried and had apparently become extinct. Christ rescued them from the rubbish of air, gave them a new vital force, and commanded them to shine as precious jewels and stand fast forever. Now I'm going to ask you a very good question, okay? I would like somebody to tell me the answer. What is the definition of truth? Okay, that was the easy answer. When someone says to you, what is the definition of truth, what would you say? Someone thinks that's factual? Do you think all truth is factual? No. I do. If it's not factual, what is it? But truth is more than just that which is factual. What is truth? Yes. Is that reality? Now, here's the thing. You said it very well, but I'm going to add to that. Truth is reality as God sees it. Truth is reality as God sees it. I can't trust my own perception of truth in this sinful world. Can you say amen to that? I need God's perspective of reality. Very well said. But what Satan has done, Satan has taken that which belongs to God and has rearranged it. Satan does not have his own material to borrow from. Can you say amen to that? He simply rearranges truth and messes up its original configuration, thus causing error and deception. Does that make sense, yes or no? Let's continue with this. What Christ did, Christ came to reset the truth. Ellen White says in Patri or Desire of Ages that the world was dark through a misapprehension of God. People did not know who God was, even during the time of, of, of Judaism when Jesus visited it. It was dark. The world had such a dark misapprehension, specifically two things that were made to clear up the character of God in the sinful world were abused. Do you know what they were? It was A, marriage, and B, the Sabbath. A, marriage, and B, the Sabbath. A, marriage represents the close personal union that God wants to have with his people. B, the Sabbath represents God's mighty power to create. God as a close being and God as the creator. And these two pictures, the devil had really destroyed and thus caused a misapprehension of God. Folks, I want you to understand something. If you have an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend, and they find your old pictures, what do they do with those pictures, generally? If they're not happy with you. Yeah, you, you want to burn them, right? Or you want to destroy it. So when Satan sees pictures of God, do you know what he seeks to do? He seeks to destroy these pictures. And so that's why it's very important for us to be faithful in what God has called us to do, to be witnesses in this dark world. Matthew chapter 2, and this is where we begin our presentation. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the what? East. Did you know Jesus said in the book of Matthew that many will come to worship him from the east and from the west and sit down with him? Did you know in the very beginning of Christ's ministry, wise men came from the where? East. At the very end, John chapter 12, right before his crucifixion, you had Greeks who came from the west to seek out Jesus. Very interesting. They came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men were not Jews. They had found a little bit of light and God was leading them in this light. I love what Ellen White says right here. Desire of Ages, page 60. The wise men from the east were what? Philosophers. Does anybody know what a philosopher is? A philosopher is a, is a word that's composed of two different words. Phileo and sophist. The love of knowledge or lovers of wisdom. The men from the East were philosophers. They belonged to a large and influential class that included men of noble birth and comprised much of the wealth and learning of their nation. Others were upright men who studied the indications of providence in nature and who were honored for their integrity and wisdom. 
Of this character were the wise men who came to Jesus. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. As these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the Creator. In fact, what's very interesting, they began to follow the stars based upon one scripture that they had, and it was the writings of the book of, in the book of Numbers, specifically the writings of Balaam, the false prophet. I have talked to various individuals who are, who are Muslim, and they still make it very clear that the writings of Balaam are still used in Iran. Very interesting. Let's continue. Seeking clear knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew scriptures. In their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of a divine teacher. Balaam belonged to the magicians. Through at one time a prophet of God by the Holy Spirit, he had foretold the prosperity of Israel and the appearing of the Messiah, and his prophecies had been handed down from, by tradition after, from century to century. The Magi learned with joy that his coming was near and that the whole world was to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. All they simply had were some of the Hebrew scriptures, specifically the writings of Balaam found in Numbers that was talking about the star that would come. And based upon that, they followed God. Ellen White even says that it was such a long journey, but because of, they knew that this light was guiding them, they had to risk everything. And can you imagine, and by the way, I've looked at some records of some of the Magi visiting other kings, specifically Emperor Nero, and when they showed up, they showed up with a caravan, a whole bunch of people. And so you can imagine a whole group of them just simply traveling down this long, long road to find and simply follow this light to search out who the king of the Jews were. They themselves were not Jewish. But this is important for us to understand because you have a group of people, a group of people who show up, the Bible says, in the book of Matthew, and the Bible says the king was filled with fear and all of Jerusalem. Do you want to know why Jerusalem was filled with anxiety when these magi showed up? Because they begin to think to themselves, is God calling somebody else? Do you know as we see our church continue to grow and God bring people from the left and from the right, it shouldn't surprise us. This is going to happen more and more as we get to the end of time. I'm going to share a very interesting story I had of a Sikh man who showed up at my church not too long ago. It's going to surprise you. What's very interesting is that the writings of Balaam, there are still some of the writings of Balaam available, uh, there was an inscription that was found in the house that's believed to be of Balaam. And if you look at this writing, it's very interesting. Um, scholars believe that they, you can see how far he actually apostatized from God. Some of the strange things he was talking about. But in Iran, there are people who still have these treasured writings. But you can see how far he was off the mark in this. Very interesting. You had a group of people who followed a little bit of light and it led them to the Messiah. He who is faithful in that which is least will be faithful in that which is must. This is a man by his name is Dr. Jean Halat. He was an anthropologist who, was, um, who spent some time, a few years, with the pygmy people. Now, if you take a good look at the pygmy people, you can see that they're very short. There seems to be some type of nutritional deficiency there. But he spent several years studying out their culture, their religion, their language. What was so surprising to him was that he discovered a very strange story in their religion. And as he examined this story, he was blown away because this story was very similar to the Garden of Eden story. And here's this story. One fine day in heaven, God told his chief helper to make the first man. The angel of the moon descended. He molded the first man from earth, wrapped his skin around the earth, poured blood into his skin, and punched hole for the nostrils, eyes, ears, and mouth. He made another hole in the first man's bottom. And put all the <laughs> and put put all okay. Let's keep going. And put all the or, put all the organs in his inside. Then he breathed his own vital force into the little earthen statue. He entered into his body. It moved. It sat up. It stood up. It walked. It was Efe, the first man and the father of all who came after. God said to Efe, "Beget children to people my force. I will give them everything they need to be happy." They will never have to work. They will live forever. There is only one thing I forbid them. Now listen well, give my words to your children and tell them to transmit this commandment to every generation. The Tahu tree is absolutely forbidden to man. You must never for any reason violate this law. F.A. obeyed this instruction. He and his children never went near the tree. Then one terrible day, a pregnant woman, gotta blame the women, a pregnant woman went to her husband. Darling, 
I want to eat the fruit of the tahu tree. He said, you know that this is wrong. She said, why? He said, it is against the law. She said, that is a silly old law. Which do you care about more, me or some silly old law? Finally, he gave in, his heart pounded with fear as he sneaked into the deep, deep forest, and there it was, the forbidden tree of God. The sinner picked up a tahu fruit, he peeled the tahu fruit, he hid the peel under a pile of leaves, then he returned to camp, gave the fruit to his wife. She tasted it, she urged her husband to taste it, he did. All the other pygmies had a bit. Everyone ate the forbidden fruit, and everyone thought that God would never find out. Meanwhile, the angel of the moon watched from on high, he rushed a message to his master. The people have eaten the fruit of the tahu tree. God was infuriated. You have disobeyed my orders, he said to the ancestors. For this, you will what? Die. You broke your promise to me, and you pulled that poor man into sin. Now I'm going to punish you. Both of you will find out what it is to work hard and be sick and die. But you women, since you made the trouble first, you will suffer the most. Your babies will hurt you when they come, and you will always have to work for the man you betrayed. Now what story does that sound like to you? Yeah, it sounds like the third chapter of the book of Genesis, right? Now, here's what's so interesting about this. What you're, John Hallett is not a Christian. He is not a believer. In fact, he's an atheist. He's very skeptical of Christianity. But he was blown away when he looked at this story. And you know what his conclusion was? His conclusion was that the pygmy people probably came up with the story of the book of Genesis. And from then, it spread out to the rest of the world. But we know what the Bible teaches. We know what divine history is. The Bible talks about something very interesting. talks about the Tower of Babel. The Bible teaches that there was, after the flood, that these people were one, and as they began to build a tower, that God um, separated these people, and these Gentiles went to various lands and different groups, and there, as they separated, they became completely isolated, sometimes cut off from the rest of civilization, and there, over time, truth began to become displaced and legend took over that which was divine history. Something that's very interesting, what you'll find with many different cultures in different parts of the world are three or four commonalities. Okay, here they are. Number one, there tends to be a flood story. Well, why would there be a flood story? Because there was a flood. <laughs> Number two, what you will also find is that there is a ziggurat structure in many different cultures. Do you know what a ziggurat structure is? It's a Babylonian structure, specifically designed a huge structure. This is how they built huge structures. This is what many scholars believe the Tower of Babel was. Why would they have that? Because it was simple, simply recent history. And so here they are, they take that. You go down to South America, you go to Japan, you go to India, and what you will find is a similarity in the structure of their temples. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's continue. Here's another skeptic. He was studying some of the, uh, some of the islands. Oppenheimer suggests, it's, he wrote this book called Eden in the East. He is not a Christian himself. In fact, he's a vowed atheist. But many of these individuals who are scholars will come across this information, don't know what to do with it, and simply come up with their own theories. They don't have a reason for, they don't have a reason for why these biblical stories are actually in these religions. Oppenheimer suggests that a similar story with the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, as well as infighting, Kabel and Habel, turned out to be found in East Asia and the Pacific Islands. For example, the Maori people in New Zealand called the first woman by the name Ivet. Then in Papua New Guinea, the story is similar to Cain and Abel in the form of Kalabup and Manep. Traditions in this era also suggest that the first man made of soil clays were colored red. Very interesting, very interesting. How about the Sabbath? We talked about this yesterday. It's very interesting. This was actually, um, there's a book called Sabbath Roots. It's written by a Seventh-day Adventist. And he talked about how Catholic missionaries, when they showed up in Africa, were so surprised when they discovered Sabbath-keeping churches. Ethiopia is a nation defined throughout its existence by its fidelity to the Seventh-day Sabbath. Today, the numbers of Sabbath-keepers are exploding in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Kenya, Gabon, Congo, and elsewhere. Why? Because of the work of missionaries in the 1800s? No, the Sabbath is thriving in Africa because of the Sabbath roots of Africa run deep, both in scripture and in historical practice. Sabbath roots gives much fascinating information about the history of the Church of Ethiopia. 
The queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia and bore a son from King Solomon, although that's to be debated. I'm not quite sure if King Solomon and Queen Sheba actually got together, although King Solomon, even when he was being blessed by God, was still committing a lot of, issue, a lot of adultery then. Palashas continued the Old Testament religion. In other words, they're Ethiopians who are Jewish, and they actually have Jewish blood in them. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40, we are given the introduction of Christianity to Ethiopia with the conversion of, Ethiopian by, of the Ethiopian treasure by Philip. The treasure returned to Candace's court, and as a result, Ethiopia became the first Christian nation. Here you have the Queen of Sheba, who goes to Solomon, learns all that she can, and her heart was completely satisfied. She brought the Old Testament to the Ethiopians. And then you have this Ethiopian eunuch who had a conversation with Philip. He goes there and he brings the second half of the, of, the, of the Bible to them. And there you have a Christian nation begin to develop, a Sabbath-keeping Christian nation. In fact, if you look, I believe it's from Sabbath to Saturday, Bakayoki talks about how, and he shows the documentation of how Catholic missionaries, when they showed up in Ethiopia, they began to force the king of Ethiopia to bow down to the papacy and change the worship of Saturday to Sunday. Very interesting. The Ethiopians resisted, although their king finally capitulated, and then the rest of them went as well. Very interesting. The influence of Ethiopia on the rest of Africa was enormous. Let's continue. China and Bible prophecy. This is something that many people know about. You can read this book. It's called China and Bible Prophecy. It's actually written by a Seventh-day Adventist minister who was a missionary, Samuel Wang and Dr. Ethel R. Nelson. And they wrote this book called China and Bible Prophecy, although it's more than just the Adventists who have this information and knowledge. There are actually other Chinese scholars who find the same similarity. For millennia, China has been called herself the land of God. It would appear that the hand of omnipotence was leading this ancient civilization. In the annals of Chinese history, we do not find a single instance of God's anger being poured upon a Chinese city because of moral depravity, as happened to Sodom, Gomorrah, and Pompeii. Very interesting. Now here's a verse in Isaiah that's thought to refer to China. Surely these shall come from afar, look those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. What's very interesting, in Isaiah chapter 49, it's talking about the Gentiles coming to God. And so there's people coming from the north, people coming from the west, west, people coming from the south, and people coming from the land of Sinim. Here's what's interesting about the word Sinim. You may wonder what the word Sinim means. Where's this land of Sinim mentioned by Isaiah before his service was terminated in 680 BC? According to Strong Concordance, Sinim is a distant oriental region. Young's Concordance reports Sinim is a people in the far east, the Chinese. However, the meaning is still not quite clear. Let us go to an English dictionary for help. And there you will see many variations of the word sinum, and you will see it's in many different languages as well. And it's always referring to the Chinese. There was a period in time where China had a monotheistic religion. Who is Shangdi? The name literally means the heavenly ruler. By reviewing resuscitations used at the border sacrifice recorded in the statutes of the Ming Dynasty, A.D. 1368, one may begin to understand the ancient Chinese reverence for Shangdi. When Di, Shangdi, the Lord has so decreed, he called into existence heaven, earth, and man. You find it being very similar to what Genesis, Psalms chapter 33, verse 6 and 9 says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, for he spoke, it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. So what else? For the old in the beginning, there was a great chaos. This is talking about Shangdi's creation story, without form and dark. The five elements had not begun to revolve, nor the sun and moon to shine. You, or spiritual sovereign, first divided the grosser parts from the pure. You made heaven and you made earth. You made man. All things with their reproducing power got their being. Very similar, you find the nearly uh, something very similar in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, about God dividing the, uh, the light from the darkness. I know some of you guys may think to yourself, well, that's still kind of a stretch. Well, let's continue. Here's what's also required in the worship of Shangdi. Erect an altar of earth on Mount Tai and offer a burnt offering to heaven. Look at the biblical record found in Exodus chapter 20. Then God said to Moses, an altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall not sacrifice it, your burnt offerings. Why did God not command the Israelites to build and construct an altar? Because he was trying to show them that righteousness always comes from God. Can you say amen to that? Very interesting, you look also in the Chinese language. What's always connected to culture and religion is language. Always. 
You take a good look at the, some of the words that represent righteousness. It's a combination of the word me and sheep. You plus the Lamb of God equals righteousness. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Or how about creation? Speak, dust, life, walk, and mud. Those characters used together create the word create. Speak, dust, life, walk, and mud. Take a good look at this. This is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in, the, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's an antitype which now saves us baptism. Take a good look. Vessel plus eight plus person equals boat. Very interesting. How about this one? The word for tower is dust plus grass plus people plus one plus mouth. The Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us now go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Very interesting. Here's something else. The word for rainbow is a combination of two words, rain and final part. It shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I'll remember my covenant which is between me and you and living creature of, and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Here you have the Cherokee Nation as well. There are different tribes of the Cherokee Nation, but there was a reverend who spent almost 30 years with the Cherokee Nation, and this is talked about in John Payne's book, sounds like John Wayne, but it's John Payne, John Payne's book, and it's a description of the Cherokee from the earliest time to contemporary times, and what's so interesting about the Cherokee, what they discovered, this particular tribe, that they worshipped a god who was called Yehovah. Very interesting. The chief supreme being believed in by the Cherokees of the 18th century was the same mysterious being or being beyond human conception, which should always be a mystery to man. Yehovah was more, was the, well, whom the more ancient Cherokees had said was both God and King, appearing sometimes on earth as a man. Ancient tradition says that Yehovah commanded the people to rest from all work on the seventh day and to show their adoration for him by holding their hands entirely still while they rested with their palms open upward on their knees. The people were confined to themselves to talk about the supreme being that dwells on high on the seventh day. Very interesting. You know, when Catholic missionaries showed up, they thought that they found a bunch of heathen. You know, God is working all over the world. Can you say amen to that? We're going to be so surprised when we realize how many prophets, how many godly men he sent all over the world. We're going to be so surprised. And that's why I think the book of Jonah is so important because here you have an example of God saying, by the way, look what I'm doing all over the world. I'm sending my prophets to pagan nations. We're going to be so surprised. You know what's very interesting? God does not judge people based upon the truth they did not receive. Can you say amen to that? He does not judge people based upon their ignorance. He, based, he judges based upon when they have a potential to know the truth and whether or not they reject it. The Bible says in John chapter 3, light has come into the world and men reject it simply because they love their deeds more than the light. So it's not so much how much light you have, it's what are you doing with the light you do have. Those people, by the way, did you know that there are two churches right now? God has two churches. Do you know what they are? Can you name one? Okay, you have the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is the visible remnant of God. And then you have the people who are in Babylon. Ellen White says in great controversy that God's people, many of them, the, most, the majority of them are still in Babylon. That's why God says in John chapter 18, come out of her, what? My people. And so God has a visible church and he has an invisible church. Babylon is not his invisible church. People within Babylon who are following God to the best of their ability are his people, and church is a group of people. And what God wants to do, he wants to pull those out, and he wants to have one church. But here's what's so remarkable. Apparently, God has not seen it fit to bring those people out and to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church in great groups. You want to know why? Now I'm going to say something very provocative to you. 
because they're in a better spiritual state where they're at right now. The church isn't ready. And that's what blows my mind away. Folks, we need to seek out God's way. Seek out the old ways and what He would have us to do. You are a witness whether you like to believe that or not. Amen? Let's continue. Here you have the flood story. What's very interesting, prior to me becoming a Christian, I was very interested in Hindu mythology. I also was given the flood story, and in Hinduism, you'll find the flood story as well. What's very interesting, Dr. Duane Gish in Dinosaurs by Design says that there are more than 270 stories from, around, from different cultures around the world about a devastating flood. Although there are varying degrees of accuracy, these legends and stories all contain similarities to aspect of the same historical event. Now, why would almost every single culture in the entire world have a flood story? Because there was a flood. There was a worldwide flood. In fact, what was so interesting one day, I was at the Grand Canyon, and I was with a group of people, and I, I got to tell you this story. I was at the Grand Canyon, and I was with a group of people, and I was just there, and I see this, this man, he's with his son, and they're just arguing in Spanish. Arguing in Spanish, right? And I'm just there, and I just feel very impressed by God just to stop and look and see what's happening, okay? And I'm just there looking. And you look at my face. The natural default is a frown. Like, I'm, and I apologize if you sometimes think, wow, I don't want to go near him. It's just my natural default. I'm really happy inside. <laughs> and so, you know, I was just there and I was looking. And I was just looking at him. And he was just arguing with his son. No, 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 no. You know, going back and forth in Spanish. And then I hear the word Dios. I know what the word Dios is. I took Spanish one. <laughs> right? What's the word Dios? God. It means God. So here they are and I hear Dios. And, and they're going back and forth. And the father starts looking at me because I'm just staring like this. Back and forth. And here we are at the Grand Canyon. And they're going back and forth. And finally, after about 15 minutes of arguing, he walks away. And I just start walking towards him. Okay? I start walking towards him. I go, hi, how you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm doing good. I go, you guys are visiting the Grand Canyon? He's like, yeah. I go, I heard you and your son arguing. I was pretending like I knew Spanish. And uh, he's like, yeah, my son was trying to tell me that the Grand Canyon was caused by a worldwide flood. And he's like, looked at me. And kind of like, you know, very cynical. And I said, you know, I believe the same thing. <laughs> and he's just like, what? And he's like, how could you believe that? And I begin to lay off several reasons for a worldwide flood, including some geology as well. And I begin to lay these reasons out. All of a sudden, the sun was just like nodding his head back and forth. <laughs> you know, it was so interesting. And as I'm watching it, you know, as I'm talking to him, the father starts becoming convinced. He's like, I never knew this. Like, I never knew this. He said, what church you go to? And I go, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. We believe in the Bible 100%. Amen? He's like, really? And I said, yeah, I go, we worship on the Sabbath day, which was a memorial of that God created the world. He's like, that's amazing. I never knew all this stuff. I said, check out a Seventh-day Adventist church when you have time. He's like, I will. And then as he's walking away, I said, he comes back and says, by the way, you know why I kept looking at you? And he says, it was so strange. It was like your face was glowing. Look, I'll tell you, I didn't shave that day. <laughs> I know that wasn't me. I don't have a natural sheen. As we give God's word, God will bless us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Let's continue. Very interesting. Here's a Hindu story, and this is what I learned before I became a Christian. For many years, the fish towed the ark through the water, and at last it came to the highest mountain in the Himalayas. At its command, they tied the ark to the mountain peak, and then the fish said, O men of wisdom, I am the creator of everything. I took on the shape of a fish, and I have saved you from this flood. With my blessings, Manu will once again fill the world with life. With these words, the fish disappeared, and Manu became the father of a new race of living things. Very interesting. This is in Hindu scriptures. They believe there was a worldwide flood that completely destroyed everything, and a man survived by going inside a fish. It's a combination of Jonah and the book of Genesis. So, how about the Abraham enigma? Very interesting, very interesting. The story of Abraham. When you take a good look at Abraham, the Bible says he was the man of the East. He was well known. God insert him, inserted him in what was considered the heart of the world at that time, the crossroads, which was the land of what? Canaan. That's exactly right. 
there was a crossroads between Africa and Europe and Asia, and right there God inserted his man Abraham and put him there. Abraham was a faithful man who worshipped God, who followed God, who heard the voice of God. And those people who live at the end of the time are to be spiritual children who come out of Babylon like Abraham did. What's very interesting, there was a doctor who began to study out languages, and what he discovered was that the Magi, and we learned about the Magi a little bit earlier, are said to have called their religion Kish Ibrahim. Kish Ibrahim. They traced their religious books to Abraham, who was believed to have brought them from heaven. What is also very interesting, the Persians also claim Ibrahim, i.e. Abraham, for their founder as well as the Jews. Thus we have seen that according to all ancient history, the Persians, the Jews, and the Arabians are descendants of Abraham. We are told that Terah, the father of Abraham, originally came from an eastern country called Ur of the Chaldees, or Chaldees, to dwell in a district called Mesopotamia. Sometime after he had dwelt there, Abraham, or Abram, or Brahma, and his wife Sarai, or Sarai, or Sarai Ishwati, left their father's family and came to the land of Canaan. The identity of Abraham and Sarah with Brahman and Sarai Ishwati were first pointed out by Jesuit missionaries. What's very interesting, you have within Hinduism, you have the three gods. You have Vishnu, Shiva, and you have the, uh, the creator god, Brahma. There is a similarity in the, in the wording of the word Brahma and Abraham. But Brahma married his sister, Sarai Washti, and they had a child. What's very interesting is that the tributary or the slave of Sarai Rashti, the name is Hagar. Very interesting. Now, where would this come from? Where would this come from? How could the story of Abraham be part of Hinduism when it's completely a pagan language, pagan um, religion? Here's something to understand. This is very important. I was tipped off as I was just beginning to examine this this idea out more and more. In fact, uh, Ravi Zacharias is the one who, he, you know, one of his books introduced me to this. If you read the book called, it's called Krishna Talks with Christ, he begins to lay out a reason at the very end about this same topic. And if you take a good look, you look at Abraham, the story of Abraham, I believe it's um, Dr. Hazel, not the, the younger one who teaches at Southern, but his father, Although Dr. Hiles is not that young, but uh, it's, his, it's his father, Gerald, I think it's Gerhard, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, he, he's written some books about uh, when Hinduism, he talks about one of his quotes, he talks about when Hinduism might have started, he mentioned a quote where he said it's around 20, 2150 BC, sometime after the flood, and it's very interesting, it was shortly around then that Hinduism, according to many scholars, had its origin. Now. Hinduism has a great degree of Babylonian influence. You take a good look at many similarities in the religion, the exaltation of the cow, seen as very sacred. But what is also very interesting is that Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that Abraham, the friend of God, set us a worthy example. His life was a life of prayer. Wherever he pitched his tent, Close beside it, it was set up his altar, calling all within his encampment the morning to the morning and evening sacrifice. When his tent was removed, the altar remained. In the following years, pay attention to this, there were those among the roving Canaanites who received instruction from Abraham. And whenever one of these came to that altar, he knew who had been there before, and when he had pitched his tent, he repaired the altar and there worshipped the living God. Abraham was well known in the land of Canaan because of the miracles that God was doing in his life. It had influence upon the Canaanites, it had influence upon the Babylonians, and you imagine all these groups as they begin to disperse more and more, took the story of Abraham, truth was then broken away from its original framework and placed in a framework of error, and over time this truth became a legend and this legend became religion. Very interesting, very interesting. I think we'll also see a very similarity in Egyptian history when you take a good look at some of the Bible patriarchs who were involved, who intersected Egyptian history. Many of them became exalted, and uh, not by their own standard, but by some of the Egyptians, and they began to be worshipped as deities as well. Very interesting. Anybody know what this is? This is in India. It is called the Lotus Temple. I've been there. 
few times. Very interesting. You go inside the Lotus Temple, and all it is is a giant building. It looks like a church from the inside. There's no particular idolatry in there. You go in there, and it's just pews that are laid out, and it's just completely still, completely quiet. You get there, and it's just no one's talking. You're not allowed to talk. It looks like a mega church. And you're there, and you're just sitting there. And it's supposed to be a time for different people to, to connect with the spiritual being, connect with God. But what this is, this is actually from the Baha'i faith. Have you heard of the Baha'is? The Baha'is believe that, you know, that God has taken several different forms and different religions, from Jesus to Buddha to Krishna to on and on and on. And the Baha'i believe in just unifying everybody together and heading in the right direction. The problem with that is not everybody agrees with each other. But what's interesting is that the Baha'i were, their origins come around the time of the late 1800s. How were they influenced? They were influenced because there was a man by the name of William Miller. Have you ever heard of that guy before? You heard of him? That's right. Now, William Miller was a Seventh-day Adventist. Was he a Seventh-day Adventist? No. He was not a Seventh-day Adventist. He was not a leader in the church at all. He was not an Adventist. He was a Baptist minister. His work laid a foundation for Seventh-day Adventists. So when people say your church leader, William Miller, uh, made a false prediction about the Second Coming, one thing you need to say is, number one, William Miller was never a Seventh-day Adventist. And number two, he was influenced by the people around him to put down a date more than anybody, uh, more than himself. Very interesting. But what's interesting about the Baha'i is that they were influenced by William Miller's prophecy, specifically the 2300 days. You go on to the Baha'i library found online, and they actually have the 2300-day prophecy right there, and it's articulated like an evangelistic series. Then he answered, 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Briefly, the purport of this passage is show that he appoints 2300 years, for in text, the Bible each day is a year, because they take the Bible as well as part of the other religions. Then from the date of the issuing of the edict of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem until the day of the birth of Christ, there are 456 years. And from the birth of Christ until the day of the manifestation of the Bab, there are 18, 1,844 years. When you add 456 years to this number, it makes 2300 years. That is to say, the fulfillment of the vision of Daniel took place in the year A.D. 1844. But they don't believe that, that Jesus went into the second part of the sanctuary ministry. What they do believe in the May 22nd, that this man, Bob, he began to proclaim himself as the Christ who has returned. And he became the founder of the Baha'i religion, but eventually was martyred or was killed by Muslims in the region. Very interesting. And this is the year of Bob's, I'm saying that wrong, Bob's, that's the correct pronunciation, manifestation according to the actual text of the book of Daniel. Consider how clearly he determines the year of manifestation. There could be no clearer prophecy for a manifestation than this. Folks, they have the 2300-day prophecy and they still accept the 2300-day prophecy. They don't accept the conclusion of the 2300-day prophecy. In fact, when you look at some, I was looking at some of the other articles by the Baha'i scholars, and they articulate the 2300-day prophecy like they're giving evangelistic series. That's amazing. Now you have something to connect with them about. This is also very interesting. This was an Adventist World magazine. This came out several years ago, Adventists and Muslims, Five Convictions, How to Build on What We Have in Common. And what took place was several years ago, there was Muslim scholars who invited... They called up the Seventh-day Adventist Church and they said, hey, we want to uh, dialogue with your religion, with people, uh, with a Seventh-day Adventist. We want you to come over. And so they came to an undisclosed location and there began this dialogue between these Muslim scholars and Seventh-day Adventist theologians. And finally, after one of the time, William Johnson, who wrote this article, he came up to one of the, the, one of the scholars. He's like, so what's the point of actually us being here? And the Muslim tells him why. And he says, because there was a village where many people, including some of these scholars, had a very vivid dream about the second coming of Jesus and told, were told in the dream specifically about Seventh-day Adventists. 
you know, it's very interesting. One of my good friends, he went to do some missionary work in Norway, and uh, there's a refugee camp for Iranian Muslims. And he was told, my best friend was told, that there was an Iranian Muslim who had become a Christian and was keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. And that's all he was told in a dream. So my friend went to go visit him, and my friend, he told me the account. He was there, and it's so funny. He was there, and they were just eating, and while they were eating, my friend began to notice these rats running around everywhere, just giant rats. And I hate rats and mice, and ugh, that disgusts me for some reason, too. So as he's telling me, I'm just like, like so, as, so he's talking about these rats, and he's just seeing them, and he's just becoming disgusted and cringing as rats are just running by. And the man who had the dream, who was keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, had just very relaxed in his house, his feet up on the couch, and all these things. And then he says to my friend, you see these rats here? My friend says, yeah. And he said, I hate them. (laughs) He said, I try to kill them, but they keep coming back. He said, but on the seventh day, I don't kill them. But he said, when the seventh day is over, I kill them. This man was given a dream that Saturday was the Sabbath day. And he needed to follow Christ. But that's all he was given. Just like the wise men were given a certain amount of truth. But as they were given a certain amount of truth, God is trusting that his people will come along like he did. He told Philip, and help people go the rest of the way. Can you say amen to that? Folks, there are many people in this world who are searching There are many people in this world who are searching who have been given great truths. And God wants us to help lead those people to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Can you say amen to that? We have been given a very special mission. A very special mission as Seventh-day Adventists. Not just of Christianity, but we can see God's working in the entire world. I really believe with all my heart Seventh-day Adventists are more than Christians. More than the common label that you receive when you hear the word Christian, Seventh-day Adventists are called to be more than Christians. We are called to be lights in this world. Can you say amen to that? And God wants us to draw people like he did when he was on this earth and give them a better knowledge of who he was. Now, I want to talk about this Davis Indian, but I don't think there's enough time. But I want to start with Jeremiah. There's a prophecy given in Jeremiah. The Bible says in Jeremiah 16, verse 19 through 21, says this, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. The Bible records that many people are going to show up and they're going to come to people like you and they're going to say, Look, we've been following lies our entire life. It was because our family followed lies and their family followed lies and their family followed lies. We inherited lies. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will, this once, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Love what Ellen White says right here. You are the light of the world. Christ declares, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 14, 16. God's work in the earth in these last days. That's today is to reflect the light that Christ has brought into the world. This light is to dissipate the gross darkness of ages. Men and women in heathen darkness are to be reached by those who at one time were in a similar condition of ignorance, but but have received the knowledge of the truth of God's word. These heathen nations will accept eagerly the instruction given to them in the knowledge of God. Very precious to God in his work in, is His work in the earth. Christ and heavenly angels are drawing at every moment. As we draw near to the coming of Christ, more and still more of missionary work will engage our efforts. The message of the renewing power of God's grace will be carried to every country and climate until the truth shall belt the world. Do you know what it means to belt the world? That's not passive. It's a whip in the world. With truth, the whole world is being inundated with truth coming out and it's not being stopped till truth shall belt the world. Of the number of them that shall be sealed will be those who have come from every nation and kindred, tongue, and people. Can you say amen to that? 
from every country will be gathered men and women who will stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb crying salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. But before this work can be accomplished, we must experience here in our own country the work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Can you say amen to that? Folks, God calls you to be a missionary. He calls you to be a missionary. When we get to heaven, we're going to have plenty of time to read the Bible. Can you say amen to that? We're going to see the Bible in living sound. Moses, Abraham, I'm going to walk by. You're going to have plenty of time to pray. You'll be able to commune with Jesus. But there's one thing you will never, ever do again. And that's save souls. That work will be finished. God has given us this work today. And every person you see in this world, every Sikh, every Hindu, every Muslim, every person of different religions can be a citizen of the kingdom. I want to end with this story. I got a call from some people about a few months ago, and it was a church in Clovis, California, and they told me that there was a Sikh man. The Sikhs are the ones that wear the turban. And he had been walking by the Seventh-day Adventist church, and as he had been walking by the Seventh-day Adventist church, he noticed that there was some type of children's event going on in the church. So he got his son, or his daughter, excuse me, and he brought her to the church, and there she was part of the VBS program. VBS works, amen? amen? And so, over time, he began to develop relationships with, these, with some of the church members at Clovis. But the problem was that this man only spoke Punjabi and broken English. But he had been going back and forth with them to lunch. And his wife had been spending time with them. Sabbath afternoon, they'd invite this Sikh man. He had a turban. And here you can imagine this man, he's sitting around with lunch, and they said, hey, we're going to pray before we eat. And they do that. And so they called me up and they said, hey, we don't know how to communicate with this guy. Can you communicate with him? And I said, well, I want you to understand something. I was born in the United States. <laughs> I can understand a gr some Punjabi. I can somewhat communicate some things, but I can't speak fluently. But I said, you can try. Someone also gave me... Uh, Mrs. Greer, Mrs. Greer, she actually, there she is. She gave me a Punjabi Steps to Christ. She's unaware of this situation. Maybe she is. She gave me a Punjabi Steps to Christ, and I had buried them, and I had given them out, and I had buried them in some of my messy office. And finally, I was like, Lord, if this man shows up, I've got to have this Punjabi Steps to Christ. And so the Lord blessed. I actually was able to discover one copy still. I pulled it out, and I had it ready. He showed up Sabbath morning. I preached. I spent the rest of the day talking to him, or attempting to talk to him. And so as I was talking with him, he was telling me that he has learned so much about Christianity. And I said, how have you learned so much? And he said, by the love of these people. He says, they are so loving, I am finding in Sikhism nothing. And then he said, what was so amazing, he said, as they were just pouring out love to me, he says... I invited them one day to my house. And me and my wife were so excited to have them around the table. And before we eat, they wanted to pray. And I said, okay, pray. And he was telling me this, and he says, as they were praying, he says, my wife looks up. And there, standing right behind the Seventh-day Adventists, she said, she saw Jesus. And his hand was upon the praying church members. And then she's like, do you, do you see that? And then, whoop, disappeared. And he was telling me that he wants to know this God like never before. He wants to seek after him. This seek is starting to seek God. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Lord, we've learned a lot, but God, you want us to do something with this knowledge. There are people who have fragments of truth. God, we pray that we can reveal to them all the truth, and that truth is you, Jesus. Bless each person here with a greater conviction and desire to reach souls, and may people see Jesus in them. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name.
This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.